Our reading tonight is from Colossians, starting in chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Thank you, Meredith. Um, as we, uh, well, there's been a lot, a lot of stuff happening in the service, and uh, I'm wearing my mask still. There we go. There we go, there we go. A lot of stuff happening in the service, a lot of serious stuff, a lot of important stuff. And then we come to this passage, and I was like, uh, when I got the assignments, I was like, oh, I've gotten, I've gotten this passage. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is an easy one, right? I was like, oh, man, thank you, Dave, uh, for giving me this passage. But, uh, but uh, we believe that the Scripture is full of good news. And when we understand it, when we listen to it, that God is speaking life. He is speaking good news into our lives. And it, it's just, um, but of course, as we open up this passage the first thing we notice is this jarring reference to slaves and masters. And, um, you know, we've been living through the last two years this uh, heightened awareness of racial justice and all these things. And this is like, these are fraught topics. These are hard topics. And when we start exploring in the Bible, we explore them humbly. We explore them, um, we explore them as learners, um, that we all come with something to learn. And so I, I, as I offer some observations on this, I hope that, um, I hope that you take it in that, in that spirit that I come as a learner and as a listener and as somebody who wants to take God's heart for justice, his passion for people seriously in, in all these matters. But of course, like I said, there's this jarring reference to slaves and masters, and we rightly recoil and we're anxious as to whether the Apostle Paul is complicit in the enslavement of others, or, or worse, is he endorsing this sort of oppression? And our, our feelings have been shaped, and rightly so, by our horror over the transatlantic slave trade and 400 years of oppression uh, visited upon African and indigenous peoples in the New World. Um, you know, the slavery of the Old South, um, I am from Texas, um, was founded upon theories of racial inferiority, inferiority that denied the full humanity and dignity of African people and their descendants, as well, as well as indigenous people with lasting consequences that we're still dealing with today. But of course, it, it, it's easy sometimes because of that to kind of transport all that and try to place that on what's happening in Paul's time. But it is important to remember that in Paul's time, the institution of slavery was something a bit more complex and, and it had a kind of a different basis. It wasn't based on racial, uh, it wasn't based on race, it wasn't based on sort of national origin. Um, 
and there were all different kinds of actual slave systems in the, mid, uh, in the ancient Near East. There was the Babylonian one, there was Assyrian ones, there was Egyptian one. There were, Greece had their own system, and then Rome their own. And, and actually, depending on where you lived, there was sometimes a hybrid of systems that worked. So it's very difficult as you go back and look to say, oh, this was the ancient form of slavery, because um, there just wasn't a the form of ancient slavery. There was a, there was a variety of things. Another thing that's sort of interesting and that we don't realize is that um, probably anywhere from 10 to 30% of people at that time were in this slave class. Um, 10% maybe in more rural areas or outlying areas in some of the major centers, urban centers like Corinth or Ephesus, maybe Rome, um, up to 30% of people living in a city uh, could be slaves. And now, uh, interestingly, uh, the, the, at one point, the Romans wanted to introduce a sort of dress code for slaves, but they actually shot it down because they were afraid they would know how many they were. <laughs> that they would see, they would look around and they'd be like, whoa, there's a lot of, there's a lot of slavery here. Um, but um, most people became slaves early on in the Roman Empire because they were prisoners of war. Um, some were kidnapped and were uh, victims of straight up human trafficking. It's, it's worth it to note that both the Old and New Testament explicitly condemn human trafficking. And in the Old Testament, this is punishable by death. Um, some people were criminals and they were sentenced to the more vicious forms of slavery, like uh, being a galley slave or maybe working in mines where you might be very likely die very quickly. It was very difficult conditions. Um, uh, some people sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Or sometimes non-Roman citizens might sell themselves to Roman citizens because there was a sort of path to freedom and Roman citizenship. It was a sort of complicated thing. And, but th and this type of slavery was, of course, limited. You would kind of get into this agreement and you'd eventually buy your way out. Um, most common in Paul's day, because they were no longer fighting these wars of conquest, was people were born to slave parents. And so they were in a household and this was a sort of cheap way of getting more and more slaves. Um, th that was probably the most common thing. But of course, as we hear this, there's like kind of complexities to what's going on and the kinds of slaves there were, how they ended up in this condition. Um, what it was like to be a slave was largely dependent on the social and economic status of the owner. If the owner was well off and doing well, the slave might work alongside of him. Uh, some slaves were, high, were bought by cities and they were administrators in the cities. Um, they had a quite responsible position, might own property, might own their own slaves. Um, and some of them had quite sort of stable lives. Other slaves worked on large plantations or in factories and had pretty horrible conditions. So, uh, and most slaves longed for eventual freedom. The, you, know, it, you know, whatever it was, it, it wasn't good. And, and they wanted out. And... Um, but there was a certain kind of economic and social security in being connected to a wealthier middle-class household. And, um, and being free might mean that as bad as things were being a slave, and it was bad, that you might actually be worse off if you were free because they were living in a time, excuse me, in which um, um, all sorts of injustice was rife. I mean, there was poverty, deep poverty, many peasants, there was, law, there was inequality, there was corruption, and there was injustice, and this ran all through society. And so, the, and, and so the conditions for slaves weren't good, and they were probably particularly horrible for women. Um, 
But it's hard, but as we, as we look at these issues, and we look at how Paul's responding to these issues, we have to also remember that there was also deep entrenched inequality across the board, and that people were living in deep poverty. Um, there was endemic corruption and injustice, and solving one problem might land somebody in a different and maybe equally horrible problem as well. And so when Paul is addressing these issues, a lot would depend on the particular circumstances that those slaves found themselves in. And so I think it's just, it's just as you, as I, I'm, what I'm trying to unpack as I do this is, is that when Paul is giving particular commands to particular people, the situations might have been fairly complex as to what would be best for the person in their particular situation and what they would even want to have happen. Um, but again, the slavery was horrible, but again, there were other deep entrenched forms of inequality, poverty, and injustice that might be equally or worse depending on the person and depending on the situation. But what we do know is this, is that Paul was deeply committed to freedom and liberty. If you read all of his writings, he considered each and every single person to be created by God and have been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Every single person was called to be a son and or daughter of God. They were a brother or sister of Jesus. Every single person was called to be a member of God's family. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Even the fact that actually in this passage that Paul takes time to like give sizable interaction with the slaves that would have been in the community showed them a, a level of respect. Some people may be like, oh, why is he talking so much to them and not the masters? But the fact that Paul was actually taking time to address them as valued members of the community spoke volumes about their worth to Jesus. It's also interesting that in Colossians 4.28, just a few verses after this, Paul brings up Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave that Paul had been instrumental in getting free. And Paul calls him a faithful and beloved brother. And he says, he is one of you or he's one of us. And so this was a radical, radical vision of what it meant to be in the ancient world. He was blowing past all kinds of status and relationships. And he's saying, all of us are on a level, level playing field. We're all created by God. Jesus has died for every single one of us. Every single one of us can be uh, children of God. All of us can be co-heirs with Christ. We're all one with Christ. And uh, Paul was completely obliterating these sort of earthly categories. Because Paul knew that the sort of change needed was so revolutionary, he busied himself with laying the theological foundations for a world in which everyone was seen to be of infinite worth, created by God, and bought by the death of Christ. The infinite death of Christ, the love of Christ. And arguably, Paul's writings and teachings and those of Jesus are the foundations upon which our whole system of human rights in the modern world is built. Uh, a guy named Tom Holland, who's a historian, has written a book called Dominion, where he makes a fairly compelling case that uh, it's not from the classical authors that we get our whole system of human rights, but it actually comes from Paul in the writings of Jesus. It's a very interesting. You can see YouTube clips as well, but it, the book is called Dominion. Um, to be honest, in the, at this stage, I don't think, if you're looking at this little passage, 
Um, I don't think Paul is writing a treatise on the institution of slavery. But I did want to just stop and comment on it because we have to be committed to issues of racial justice. We have to be committed to issues of equality. Uh, trafficking, sex trafficking, slavery, these things still exist. And I don't want to gloss over them, even though I, at some level I don't think necessarily Paul, this is his focus. This is something he's kind of alluding to. See, I, th I think in this passage, actually, Paul is just a sort of grim realist trying to give advice to Christians living in a world with some harsh realities. We can't just snap our fingers and make every equality and injustice go away. And we, ha we have to find a way to live in a world where things are far from perfect and often deeply unjust and unfair. And that's not to say that we should give up and not do our part and not keep moving the balls fo ball forward. But we can't wait for a perfect world before we, keep, we, before we move on with boldness in our lives and the stuff before us. And again, I, I think it's also worth remembering that Paul wasn't speaking from some ivory tower. He wasn't in some sort of research university just writing uh, tomes about, like, this kind of stuff. Paul was a religious and ethnic minority who was persecuted. He had been through kangaroo courts, trumped up charges. He'd been persecuted. He'd been beaten. He'd been tortured. He'd been imprisoned all on the whims of, like, capricious magistrates and rulers. So Paul knew about injustice. He had experienced it in his body. He had suffered. So when Paul writes about these things, he's not, like, speaking— he's not just some theologian at, like, uh, some sort of uh, ivory tower university or some seminary detached from reality. This was— he was facing and lived with the consequences of systemic injustice in his own life regularly. So again, we, we need to remember these things. So, but again, so what is he doing? What's actually happening here? I think actually, um, it's been interesting. I've been reading through the book of Acts uh, recently, and one of the things that's really struck me as I've read through the book of Acts is that Paul is surrounded by injustice, violence, chaos. Often he's the victim of deep, and I mean, just people are doing things that are deeply unfair or unjust to him. Um, he languishes in prison often for years. Like Paul spent often several years in prison in his life. Like it wasn't just like a couple of overnights. It wasn't a couple of little moments here and there. Paul languished in prison. And yet Paul, there's like this steadiness. There's this sense of vision. There's this sense of focus. He knew who he was and he just didn't let it go. And I think when he's writing this letter... He had a deep sense of calling, he had a deep sense of identity, and a deep sense of purpose that just guided him when life was in chaos, and life wasn't fair, and things were, seemed to be out of control around him. Again, uh, he's on a boat, it's, it's, you got the end of the book of Acts, you know, he's in the middle of a storm, and Paul is like, okay everybody, time to get some food. We're going to pray, we're going to get some things together, and then, you know, he just keeps everybody kind of organized and on things. He just doesn't seem to be ruffled. And I think that was probably somewhat of a personality issue with him. I think he was probably a strong leader, but I also think he was deeply connected to the fact that he knew who he was. He knew who he was, and he had a deep sense of mission and purpose. And he, and he was keyed into what God was doing in his life. And I think as he writes these words... And he knows the suffering of the people around him and the, of these people who are in not, I mean, in undergoing a sort of systemic injustice. I think he wants to talk to them 
about purpose. I think he wants to talk to them about a, what we might even call a theology of work. And I think Paul is, is, is thinking that if he can speak a word of encouragement to the slaves that are among them, then that encouragement, because it is such an intrinsically unjust situation, then that can apply to anybody. If, if, if God's word, if he can speak a word of good news to this unjust situation in which the, the, the slaves in the community, in their church were, then the other people around them should probably listen in as well and learn something about the ways God can work and the power of God um, can transform even the most unjust situation. I think Paul actually chooses this because it's a deeply unjust situation because he believes that if God, he can speak a word of good news, of gospel into this, it matters. And the first thing he wants to say is, focus your mind back on who Jesus is. He says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We're, he says, in everything you do, do it for Jesus. In everything that we do, we're serving Jesus, even in the most difficult of circumstances. We're not working for someone else, and we're not even working for ourselves. We are working for Jesus. This speaks to the significance of our work. Our work is an offering. Our work is a sacrifice and ultimately an act of worship to God. It's unto him. It's for him. Whatever it may be. You know, where this, this, uh, the cop thing, the creation thing, speaks into the fact that we, don't, we can't compartmentalize which parts of life God is involved in. And of course, it's easy to have compartmentalized. Well, God is in the sort of church part of my life, and maybe he's in the relationship part of my life. But then there's this sort of work side of me. But God wants to go invade every single part of it. And he says, when you work, it's actually all about me. Whatever it is you do, it's actually all about me. And, and sometimes we can feel like our work is... Uh, menial or difficult, or sometimes it can feel like it's not significant, or sometimes we can feel like we're spinning our wheels, or it sometimes feels like we're not making progress, or maybe we have a difficult work colleague, or maybe we have a set of people that we're working with that are very, very uh, difficult, and we feel like, what is happening here? And we can often feel that our work is meaningless or insignificant or difficult, but God receives our work as an offering of love from us. And he breathes into it significance and meaning and, dare I say, power. Because the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you. And he says, I see what you do. If you are working hard and it's been frustrating and you feel like no one is noticing and that it's been so difficult and you wonder what's going on, God sees your work. He sees how hard you're working. If it's unappreciated or unnoticed by some of your colleagues around you, it is not unnoticed by God. He knows how hard you're working. He knows how much you've been hanging in there, especially during COVID. Maybe you've been working in an isolated unit, and you're like, what is going on here? And, you, and it feels like no one really appreciates how hard it has been for you. But God says, I see you. I see the work that you've done. And I notice it, and I take this as an offering to me. I give your work meaning, and because our work is for him, and it's because it's fundamentally an act of worship, he challenges us to give our best effort. He's speaking into our motivation. He calls us, and he says, work 
with all your heart. Now, the, the really fun, the really nice thing about working for God is that there's kind of a, well, there's a blessing and there's a challenge. The first thing is God knows our weakness. God knows when we're battling and are struggling. And even if someone's being hard on us, he can see through it all. And when you're giving your best and maybe the world is frustrated at you or isn't giving you credit or whatever, God knows how hard you're working and you can lean into his grace. There are times when doing your best means also taking Sabbath because your work is unto him, right? And so there's a sense of rest that when you have given your best, you can rest in him because you're working for him and he knows all about you. But the other, of course, the other side of it is he knows all about you. And when you're cutting corners or things aren't going, you know, maybe you aren't giving your best or you haven't been totally faithful. He also sees those things and you can't really hide from him. And he says, you know what? I, you can do better. I've gifted you. I've called you. And you're only half trying right now. I've got more for you. And I know this job may not seem significant in the moment. I know it may seem like you've got better things to do or you're waiting for the next, you know, you, you'll start trying hard when you get to that real job, the one that you really want. But I'm calling you right now to be faithful where you're at, whether it's in that class, whether it's in that, uh, that job or working with that colleague. And he says, you know what? While you're here, I challenge you to get, work, do this for me. I'm going to give this meaning. And and then he says the, the wonderful thing that as we do everything is unto him, he promises actually that he will reward us, that actually honor and opportunity and reward, whatever that means, comes from him. We're not working for other people ultimately. We're working for Jesus. And again, that's both humbling and encouraging that as we give our best efforts, honor, opportunity, success, whatever these things look like, but significance comes from him. God is appreciating what we're doing. He's noticing, and he promises that he will reward us. Now, I, I don't believe in some sort of prosperity gospel, but I also believe that God is, but I do believe that God is faithful. God is at work. He will provide for your daily bread, and also I believe that he is committed to your fruitfulness. He is committed to your life. So there's this promise in the Bible that says, don't lay it for yourselves treasure on earth where uh, moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay it for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But there's this promise that you can lay up treasures for eternity. And whenever we do anything I think when we get to heaven, anything we've done for Jesus is going to be there waiting for us. And I don't exactly know how to unpack that, but every effort, everything offered is worship. Every insignificant, every, when you were walking along the path and you stooped down and you picked up that litter because you were like, I'm going to honor God today. And, it, and nobody saw and no one noticed. I think when you get to heaven at some level, there's going to be, I don't know exactly how, but God's going to be like, I saw that. That was amazing. I loved that. I loved you picking up the letter. You know, that little thing. Or when you were, but, or when you were patient with that person and you, didn't, and you didn't tell anybody and you didn't get credit for it and you worked with somebody that was difficult to work with. God has called you and he, and he will reward you. He will provide the, the honor and the opportunities that you need. 
And everywhere you are, you can serve. Um, Martin Luther King said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. Jesus said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be the servant of all. All of us can put our shoulder to the plow. All of us can work hard. All of us can give. All of us can lift up our colleagues. All of us can keep going. And again, these things are... Um, I don't want to minimize the fact that sometimes we work in a, we might be working in a job that isn't a great fit, and it can be discouraging. Sometimes we're working in a situation um, that's difficult. Maybe you're new at your job, and there are things that are just difficult about it. Or maybe there are relationships, and because we're working for Jesus, you know, he understands how difficult it is. It's, it's okay if you can you know, find something new, do something new. But while you're there, and as long as you're there, give, work with all your heart, doing the best that you can. Again, if you need to find something else, yeah, go find something else. That's okay. But as long as you're there, do it all to the glory of God. And, and of course, there's a, another side of this. You know, he says that there's accountability there, and there's that when uh, the God does hold us accountable and God holds those around us accountable. Sometimes we get frustrated and it seems things like situations are unjust. But we do have to lean on God's justice. In this world, there will not be full justice. There just won't. And actually, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is connected to my ideas about justice and this idea that, that if there is no God, there's no justice. It, there is no justice, you know. But I believe that God is ultimately just, and I believe that there will be justice, and I, and, and, and I, and I have to believe that, that that will happen, and God is the one who can, can, can level all these things out and bring them to account. But of course, because he's Jesus and he died on the cross, he can level these things out in sort of a beautiful way that redeems them as well. Um, not to get on some sort of like, oh, we want people to be beaten down for the wrong things they've done, but we want people to be uh, reconciled to God and and to recognize where things have gone wrong, and to, and to join with the beauty of what God wants to do in the earth. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. If this is true for people in one of the most unjust situations that it can be true for all of us. The last thing I want to challenge us with is that he says, um, obey your earthly masters in everything, and not only when their eyes are on you, to curry their favor with the sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. This isn't a popular thing nowadays to often think that we need to honor and submit to or obey people who are in authority over us. This is, and again, but this is a challenge from, from Scripture that we need to honor those who are in authority and be respectful of them. And again, I'm not talking about like being servile or not asking hard questions of our bosses or the people that we work with. But there's something about, are we going to do what they've asked us to do? Are we going to be faithful to the things that they've asked to do, the, the, the job remit they've laid in front of us? Are we going to cut corners? And there's a challenge there, uh, or will we honor these people? And sometimes it can be very difficult um, because we feel like they're unfair or they're obnoxious. And again, if you have a bad boss, it might be good to look for a new job. And I think 
The Lord's completely okay with that. But while we work, we need to honor those we work with. And again, if there's some unjust situation, of course we can confront that. Or if, there, you know, or if we need to ask hard questions, absolutely we can do that sort of thing. But there's a fundamental principle that when we work for others and, and those who are in authority over us, are we, are we listening? Are we being attentive? Are we being enthusiastic? Are we cutting corners? Are we being responsible and thorough? Are we honoring them? Are we dismissive of them? Um, I'll just close with a quick story. I was uh, working at a, this when I was in uni, I was working at a camp, and uh, I'd, been, I'd been a camp counselor for a couple of years, and then my third year I went and I was a co-program director at this camp, and, but there was, uh, above me was, uh, were the camp managers. And it was there, and we'd had some really fun, cool managers when I was a camp counselor, but when I became director, we had these new managers who were like, I thought were like meddling busybodies and just like always trying to get in everybody's business. And then we had a series of crises that summer and things went wrong. And I, I thought they exacerbated the problems and they made things worse. Um, and I kind of would, I was pretty dismissive of them. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and so, but I, but I loved the camp and I eventually did ministry in that part of, it was in Minnesota, I actually did ministry up there. But I remember uh, that's, uh, during the following school year, I got a phone call from the chairman of the board. And he said, hey, uh, the managers don't want to hire you back because they think you have a pretty bad attitude. And, and he says, also, there were a bunch of crises at camp, and they kind of blamed them all on me. And, man, I was livid. I was, like, so angry. And I was also hurt because I'd worked at this camp for a long time, knew a lot of people. And to be fair, uh, some of it was my fault. Some of it was my fault. But I also felt like, they had dumped all the blame on me, and it really wasn't fair. And I remember I was just so angry. And while I was fuming and blowing, uh, my dad was like, do you want to go work at that camp? I was like, do you feel called to that? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And he says, well, then you got to figure out how to work with them. Then you have to do it. Stop whining. you got to get on with it. And I remember I was just like, and I didn't have anything to say because he was right. And I did feel called. And so the next year, I went to the camp, and I did things the way they wanted them done, and I worked with them, and I worked hard for them. And you know what? I ended up doing ministry long-term in that area. God blessed it. It was really good. And I had to humble myself and go along with the right. And um, sadly, actually, there were some issues on their side that eventually they actually had to get replaced because they did some things later on that weren't right. But they were great people in a lot of ways. And I worked with them when we had a very fruitful relationship. And I just had to play ball with them and do things because God had appointed them as the leaders in that situation. And so sometimes we're caught in situations where we have to humble ourselves. And if we, want, if we feel called to places and to do certain things, then we just got to live with those circumstances and, 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 and play along. And again, I'm not talking about doing injustice but about living in the real world, being faithful and honoring those who are in authority over you. And so I just want to challenge you. Maybe that's something that God wants to challenge you, uh, you with. I believe God is speaking a word of challenge in that everything that we're called, in all that we're called to do in all of our work, we need to serve him first and foremost. When he does this, he fills what we're doing with meaning he does challenge us to give our best effort. He challenges us to honor those in authority over us. But he promises, he promises that he will reward us, that he will see our efforts, and he, whatever reward means, which I'm going to be honest, I don't completely understand it, 
but that honor, opportunity, and provision come from him. Uh, over to you, Paul. Great. Thank you, Nate. And Nate, just as you go and take your seat, just wanted to, uh, felt prompted just to honor you and just to say thank you for all that you do for our youth, that God sees the prayers that you pray, all the stuff that you wrestle with in prayer for our young people. So thank you that, that God would just say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And thank you for that challenge today. If we're able to, why don't we stand together as we respond to all that has been said. John Wimber, who was one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, he used to say this phrase, he used to say, the meeting place, or church, the meeting place is the equipping place for the marketplace. The place where we gather is the place that we are equipped so that we can go and be the church wherever God has placed us during the week. So I just want you to, just while uh, the band begin to play and create this opportunity, this space for us to respond in worship, I just want you to picture where you're going to be tomorrow morning because it's great being here at church on Sunday, but it's going to count tomorrow, isn't it? And it's going to count as we go into our week. And as we're placed around the people that God has placed around us and entrusted us with, as we're asked to love the people in front of us, that's where it's going to count. So maybe you are at work tomorrow. Maybe you're with family. Maybe you're visiting Edinburgh. But Lord, would you come? Spirit of God, would you come? Would you help us, Lord? Equip us to be the church, Lord, where we are, where you've placed us, with the people that you've put around us, God. Come, help us to be the church, Lord God, to work for you and with you, Jesus, in all that you are doing in our lives and in those around us. Lord, you give life. You bring light to darkness. You're a good God. So come and have your way, Lord Jesus. As we worship now, if you need to realign our hearts, turn our hearts, do what you will. Come and have your way, Holy Spirit. Let's just respond in worship as we close.